but that's okay. The energy's still there. I'm going to go ahead and let the kids go off to Sunday school. I think today the lesson is on the, where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, so it'll be kind of interesting. I want to take the opportunity to welcome all of our visitors, guests, long-time attenders. I'm so glad that you're here. And if this is your first or second week here at Covenant Church, we just want to welcome you in style with the wonderful Covenant Church mug. This mug is the greatest mug ever conceived by man. I am convinced of it. So that is our gift to you. So find me afterwards. We'll welcome you and give you this nice, amazing mug. I want to make sure that the Covenant Church thing is... You guys see that okay? Got the loco. I love it. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Spinoza. I serve as a pastor here at Covenant. And I want to take a minute to just thank the elders for stepping up and doing some preaching in June. A couple months ago, I basically said... I really, really don't want to preach the next couple months because i got a bunch of stuff going on. And, uh, and they were gracious to pick up the slack. So I'm really grateful for them to just fill the pulpit and do a great job. And it was a busy June for me. I bought a house, went to Nashville, put on a conference, grew a beard, ate some cookies. It was a busy, good month. But I'm thankful to, to get back into the pulpit and uh, preach the gospel once again. And, and just so you're aware, this will be my second to last sermon here at Covenant. Next week, Ken will be in the pulpit, and then we'll welcome Kyle, and he's going to give us a sermon on the 17th as well. And then my final Sunday will be July 24th. So these last couple of sermons will be bittersweet for me, but I know the Lord has good stuff planned for Hannah and I, and I know that he has great stuff planned for you guys as well. So I've been praying for a while about what the Lord might have me to say to you this morning. And it was neat because I felt like last weekend a lot of my conversations revolved around the same theme. It was how everybody in the body of Christ is a minister of the gospel. It's not me or an elder or another staff member. It's all of us. So I had a couple of conversations that happened like that. And I thought, okay, that's a solid sermon. I think I can do that pretty well. And I thought the matter was settled. So I woke up on Tuesday, and instead of reading my Bible on my tablet, I get out my big, huge ESV study Bible, things like a brick. It's like that thick. And it was neat, um, because I put some music on. It was good. Started reading a few psalms. And in the psalms I read, the psalmist talked about doing good works for the Lord. And I thought, well, that's great. That's nice. And then I randomly flipped over to the New Testament, and that's where it got a little crazy. So I randomly end up in the book of Galatians. I find this lovely verse, chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And I was encouraged. So I flipped over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, where I read this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. And I've known that verse since I was a kid. I'm sure you guys have as well. But it was good to see it again. So I'm like, that's great. But then I flip over to 2 Thessalonians, which, is a, which isn't the most popular book of the New Testament. It's not a book that I read very often. And I come across chapter 3, verse 13. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Then I thought, this is just a coincidence, right? I mean, good is a, is a word used all throughout the Bible. And then I flipped over to 1 Timothy 6. And what I come across Paul's reminder for Timothy for the wealthy people. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, yada, yada, yada. And then this is where God really started to confirm what I was hearing. I flipped over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Don't forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And then literally the next minute, I turned to 1 Peter 2. 
to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, the supreme authority, or the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There was that word again, good, the concept good works. So here I am, and God is telling me exactly what to say this morning. And then I look up, and the music playing on my screen is John Mark McMillan's The Goodness. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. I thought that's neat that God would make this abundantly clear. And then for some reason, I really wanted to listen to the Beatles. So I pull out the album Revolver, and I turn on shuffle play, and what plays? Good Day Sunshine. And I'm like, okay, I guess I have to preach a sermon on good stuff, okay? I'm sold. That's it. So that's just an example of me making a plan and then God twisting it to achieve his purposes. It happens all the time, and it's beautiful. So this morning, I want to talk about doing good. And as I was thinking through this more, I think we here in the church have a very tenuous relationship with doing good, the idea of doing good. Yeah, we know we've been saved by grace through faith. We don't have to do anything to earn our salvation. But I think we have a tendency to downplay the importance of good works in the Christian life. It either seems too secular for us to just do good stuff, or because we think once we know Jesus, we're all set. Or because we dichotomize faith and works, or we put our faith over our works. Whatever the case is, doing good is good. And that's what Scripture teaches. So this morning, I want to look at a book that talks consistently about doing good. And that's the book of Titus. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me there. Chapter 1, verse 1. Titus is a book that we sometimes ignore because it's too short. And frankly, because of of our perspective, we think it's a little shallow. It's not this majestic tome like Romans or this theologically rich letter like the letter to the Ephesians. This is a letter from Paul to a pastor whose job is to equip other pastors. He doesn't really dig into deep theology here. He's more concerned about deep theology with what really deep theology produces in the lives of those who believe it. So I'm just going to preach what I like to call a brushstroke sermon. Because all I want to do is delicately handle the text by letting the text speak for itself. And then I want to talk about what it means for us as individual believers and then what it means for us as a Christian community. So as we get into our text this morning, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to come here this morning to worship with these brothers and sisters who love you, to learn more about your word and how you would have us respond to it. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the different truths that you want us to understand and embrace this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now this is how Paul usually begins his letters. And there is a lot that could be said here. But I just want to highlight a couple things. First, he says that the purpose of his, of, his, uh, of his whole work here in the book of Titus is to further the faith of the people of God and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. So right off the bat, Paul is making quite an assumption that if you know good doctrine, you will do good things. And he views himself as the one equipped who will faithfully preach the good news of the gospel so that others will be equipped to know Jesus and make him known through their words and their good works. That's his purpose. And he's writing to a man named Titus, whom he views as a son in the faith. Now, just a little bit of background here, okay? Titus was with the folks at the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts chapter 15. And he did some missionary work with the Apostle Paul in Corinth. And after that, Paul sent him to go collect offerings from the church in Jerusalem. So Titus kind of functioned as Paul's secretary, his administrator of sorts. But Titus was essentially, in his heart, a very driven pastor. Now, church tradition states that Paul and Titus stopped in the Greek island called Crete to do some preaching. But Paul got called elsewhere, so he left Titus there on the island. And Paul's writing to Timothy, we have to keep in mind this, that he's starting churches from the ground up. So Paul's concern is that Titus starts these churches off on the right foot. And I think it's fascinating what he prioritizes. And he starts by telling Titus this. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless. He must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must firmly hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the first thing you do when you start a church is you get good leaders to help you with the work of ministry. And they've got to be highly qualified. They can't just be just anybody. These need to be guys of good character. Titus's goal is to plant a church, develop some solid leaders, and then leave to start the next one. I don't want to spend too much time here, but look at what he emphasizes They have to have good character, be hospitable, and love what is good. That'll be important for later. But he also says that the elders need to have good theology so that they can keep people in line because, as Paul assumes, good doctrine leads to good practices, good behavior. And next you see that Paul tells Titus why this is important. He says, because there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Well, if Paul is just like, that's true, I'm not going to debate that. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit 
for doing anything good. So there's a lot of going on here, okay? But the gist of it is that you need to have good teaching going on in these churches because you have people who don't know good teaching. And Paul's not referring only to Cretan culture, he's, he, but also to those who say that in order to be a good Christian, you need to be circumcised. Ouch. These folks, they're called Judaizers in some other parts of Scripture. But the point is this, is that there are people in culture and people in Cretan congregations who claim to know God, but deny Him with their actions. And in Paul's estimation, these folks are detestable, disobedient, and unfit to do anything good. So Paul doesn't try and bring some sort of dichotomy to faith and works. He really sees no separation. If you have good doctrine, you're going to do the right things. And some of you may object to that idea. But in all honesty, if you truly believed in your heart what the Bible teaches, would you go around sinning as if there's no tomorrow and lead people astray? Because that's what these folks were doing. And they are unfit for doing anything good. There's that word again. So Titus needs to appoint solid leaders of good character who love doing good and teach good doctrine because there's a lot of bad doctrine and bad stuff going around. And here's what he tells Titus next. It's kind of long. He says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good, so they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So I could preach whole sermons on each of these commands that he issues to this group of people, but I won't because the point is this, is that Titus needs to teach these people what is good. He needs to teach them what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, when you read that, you think Paul's going to tell Titus all the specific kind of deep theological teachings that need to go on in church. But no, instead, he focuses on the way that good Christians should act. He tells Titus to do good, tells others to do good as well, because it's appropriate to sound doctrine doctrine, good teaching. It's how people who know the word of God should act. Now, I'm going to take a rabbit trail and step on a few toes here, okay? I think a lot of times in the church, we want good preaching, good teaching that that goes deep. We want to hear new, fresh, unexplored interpretations of scripture that we haven't heard before, or because we want some sort of new insight. That's good. That's great stuff. But honestly, you can't go deep into the gospel until the gospel goes deep into you and causes you to obey what it teaches. Otherwise, 
reading scripture and studying theology. It's purely academic. I like to say that one scripture obeyed is better than 100 ignored. Rabbit trail done. If you pay close attention to this passage we're talking about here, you'll see that one of the huge reasons Paul is so intent on people doing good things is because of witness. The men need to be worthy of respect. The women need to teach what is good and do good so that no one will malign the word of God. Young men need to have self-control. And Titus needs to be a strong example of someone whose character is so pure and so marked by good works that no one will have anything bad to say about him. And out of the abundance of his good character and his good doctrine, he needs to teach others to do the same. Because it bears witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says next. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. So in light of what Jesus has done for us, out of the abundance of our love for him, we're eager to do what is good. To love our neighbor, to love those on the margins of society, to care for the people that need it the most. This isn't just good stuff you do because you're obligated to do it. This is the good stuff you do because Jesus did the best thing for you. And he empowers you to live into that spirit of doing good. I think a lot of times in the church we think, well, I need to get my heart right before I do good works. Or else it doesn't count, so I'm not even going to try. And as a result, we, we tie our hands behind our backs, don't we? But that's not what Paul says here. Okay? He says, look, Jesus has literally moved heaven and earth for you. And because you belong to him, not to yourself, you need to be eager to do what is good. And even if you don't want to follow Jesus, do it anyway, because the gospel demands it. And I also think that if Paul were, were here today, some of you might call him a legalist. He's saying I need to do more than believe in Jesus? Yes, Yes, he is. He's saying it's important to teach and proclaim and practice the gospel because all three of them are inseparable. Let's look at Paul and what he's telling Titus to teach these people. He says to teach them about the faith, but then also teach them how to do good and what good they ought to be doing. And he continues this line of thought into chapter 3. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, always to be gentle toward everybody. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. I honestly think that God let Paul look into the future about 2,000 years to see the current United States political landscape. I mean, he pretty much describes it spot on here. And what's sad is that when Paul says, we once were foolish 
and disobedient and slanderous. He's describing how some Christians are now, especially as it relates to politics. Notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, be subject to rulers and authorities, if you agree with them. He doesn't say, slander no one, unless they're really wrong on the issues you care about. You care about. He doesn't say, be gentle toward everyone, except for those who aren't gentle toward you. What he says is, Christians, you know better, so act like it. How a Christian relates to those in authority tells us about his or her character. And frankly, when we're slanderous or mistrustful of our government, we're saying that our hope is in something other than the gospel. And frankly, we're not being good witnesses for the gospel. And when we hate people who oppose us, we're putting our political convictions above our Christian convictions. And when we do that, we're not being good witnesses for the gospel. Jesus has taught us a better way. He's given us a better life and a better way to live. And that's what Paul says. He says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The end of your belief and trust in the gospel is the good the gospel produces in you. You don't just believe the gospel and you're good to go. The gospel gets deep within your soul and you can't help but be transformed. But it isn't the kind of transformation where you're automatically set to go for life. You've got to intentionally devote yourself to doing what is good. Your sanctification, your holiness, your growth in Christ doesn't happen automatically. It takes time. It takes work. It takes devotion. That's why elders are supposed to love good. That's why men and women are to do good. And that's why Titus is to set an example of what doing good looks like. Because we're not prone to doing good. It takes effort, it takes discipline, it takes a community to keep us accountable to good stuff. And Titus needs to stress these things so that those who have put their trust in the gospel will abide by what it says. I'm going to skip ahead to the the end of the book here. And this is how Paul closes his letter to Titus. He says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer. I think that's fantastic. Zenos, attorney at law. And Apollos on their way. This is how I read scripture. I'm like, that's hilarious. I love it. And Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So with his last few words, Paul tells his disciple Titus to remind people to do good, to encourage them to do good. So so this letter, letter to Titus, it may not be this rich theological tome like Romans or Hebrews, but it does encourage us to do good stuff 
in light of what the gospel teaches, in light of our gospel convictions. So let's bring it home to our context, the 21st century, Bowling Green, Ohio. What does it mean? It means the gospel and good works go hand in hand. In scripture, you can't have one without the other. Okay. Just read through the New Testament this week. The dynamic between faith and works is super tight. The Bible doesn't separate the two like we've done in churches today. If you believe the gospel and you truly believe everything the Bible teaches, you're going to be compelled to do good. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, I don't know what good is. What's good? It's like, well, he's shown you what is good. And what does he require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It means to look out for the poor, for the marginalized. It means having compassion on those who need it. It means loving those you disagree with. It means not hoarding all of your money just so you feel comfortable. It means giving some of your income to people caught up in natural disasters. It means caring for the widow and the orphan. It means making ethical decisions based on Scripture. You know, I know, we all know what good looks like. We just need to do it. And I think a big reason for that is because good works testify to the gospel and strengthen our witness. Pop quiz. What's our mission here at Covenant? Just shout it out. I like it. I mean, could have have cheated. It's right there. That's good stuff to know Jesus and make him known, right? That's what we're all about. And how do we do it? Through our four core practices. Doing good goes hand in hand with every single one of these practices. Preaching the gospel is about preaching how Jesus has saved us so that we can participate in the work of redeeming this world with God. When we worship together, we become consumed with Jesus and can't help but live and love like he does. When we're together as a community, we learn what it means to take care of one another in tangible ways. And when we live on mission, we're more aware of the needs of the people we're around. And we respond to those needs with gospel-infused good works so that we honor Christ and bring others to know him. What's interesting is that when Paul told Titus what, what ought to go on in these church plants, he emphasized doing good. He believed that you need to have a solid foundation of both good doctrine and good works in order to grow healthily as a church and healthily as individuals. When you look at the history of our church covenant, doing good has always been a part of us. It's written into our DNA. In order to live up to our full potential as a people of Jesus, we need to be about the work of doing good. And I want to challenge you this week. Wake up every day. Ask yourself, how will I know Jesus and how will I make him known with my words and with my good works? Frame your day around knowing Jesus better and doing the stuff that he wants you to do. Do good by the gospel and do good for the gospel. Because when we call ourselves by the name of Christ, we're giving ourselves a higher standard to live up to. And it's a higher standard set by the Son of God. You know, when we celebrate communion, we're remembering the good that Jesus has done for us. Jesus says there's no greater love than to give one's life for one's friends. That's why we call Good Friday good. 
because of Jesus' sacrifice. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in darkness. We can live intentionally, boldly, with joy. We can bring light into a world that desperately needs it. What did Jesus say? He says, let your light so shine before people so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We tell these verses to our kids all the time. But really, we all need to hear that. People need Jesus, folks. And people won't believe in Jesus unless we preach the gospel with our words and with our good works. And the reason we're able to do good is because of the good that Jesus has done for us. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. That we can live a life that honors Him and brings Him the glory He alone deserves. So I'm going to ask the worship team to to come up here. And in a couple moments, we're going to be celebrating communion together. I'm going to invite you to come up here and come to the front. Take a piece of bread which symbolizes the body broken for you. Dip it into the cup which symbolizes the blood shed for you. Gaze into the glory of the gospel. He has saved you from your sins past and present and future. And because what Jesus has done for us, we can do good through him and for him. He is good. So let's do some good. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the good that you've shown us by sending your Son to die for us. I pray that you'll help us to be a people devoted to good teaching, the gospel, and to doing good works. I pray that the gospel would produce fruit here at Covenant Church. Pray that individuals here, this community at large, would love doing good because doing good is what gives people a taste of your goodness. As we seek to do good, give us strength. Give us courage, Lord, to be witnesses for your gospel, to be those lights that shine into the darkness, to preach the good news that all can be saved if you believe in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this, Father. You are good. Help us to do good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.